Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. We are breaking up How Story Works into four seasons following four topics, character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season one, character. Today on How Story Works, the conversation is about characters in action, dialogue, character choices, breaking characters, and character arcs. Story is power. And we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. I never get tired of saying that tagline. Oh, I like it. Such a great tagline. I really love it. (laughs) I love it. All right, baby. In our last episode, we talked about making characters distinctive. So yes. I went back through and listened and wrote my summary. And like, okay, I know, I know, I know. I am the biggest <laughs> nerd in the world. I know this. <laughs> it's fine. I will own it. But I realized um, because when I started taking my notes, I hadn't done that because I was like, oh, I'll remember. It's fine. It's fine. I know mm-hmm. what an archetype is. I know what a stereotype is. E- I know what a trope is. I know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I need to actually go back and write a summary. Um <laughs> Because again, it's just moving things from tacit to explicit, right? Where yes. conceptually, mm-hmm. I understand something, but owning the definition is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I really, really do believe in this. I really think it's good cognitive mm-hmm. practice. Um, yes. And just, just mm-hmm. good learning, you know. So after I did that, I have summary notes. <laughs> Yay! So We talked about tropes and tropes kind of have a bad rep, but really at the end of the day, tropes are just writing devices, right? Three beats are tropes. Once upon a time Mm -hmm. is a trope. Um, And archetypes and stereotypes are both tropes. But archetypes are based on more universal character models, while stereotypes are socially conforming patterns and they're shallow overgeneralizations. So archetypes are characters built based on the narrative purpose that that character fulfills, your Mm -hmm. mentors, your tricksters, your heroes, your villains. And stereotypes are characters built on external characteristics, right? Mm -hmm. The sexy librarian, the mean sorority girl, the dumb jock. And so Mm -hmm. we want to write toward archetypes and not stereotypes. Plus society is a trash hellfire and we don't want to feed into that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and then I think it's it's really important to remember that characters need to be relatable and sympathetic, but they do not need to be likable. Yes. And 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 I, the very best way really to write distinctive characters is to see them as fully human and and to love them as people, just like you love the people in your life, you know, flaws and quirks and strengths and weaknesses and all. Everybody's the hero of their own story. And your job as a writer is is to love your characters and never diminish their humanity. So those were my yes. my big, big takeaways. Awesome. Very good. Episode. All of that is excellent. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I feel like I'm on the right track. And it's it's just one Definitely. of those things like really reinforcing Yep. Those ideas for myself and, and being able to go back and, and kind of make that summary. It sounds yeah. overly simplistic. Um, I was the kid who would write my notes in class and then rewrite my notes with very pretty pens. Yes. Later. But that's how I learned. 
So no, I mean, that's and that's a great way to learn. And I mean, the thing is, like, I have been working with this for like 15 years, you know, um, I learned some of this from other people. Some of this are my own is my own insight based on working with a lot of different writers and studying a lot of different stories, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a really long time to kind of figure all of it out. And even to sort out the difference between story and narrative, if you listen to my work from even a year ago, I hadn't done that yet. You know, so yeah. there's so many things about um, about storytelling, about about how all this works, that it takes a real it takes a while to sink in. And even when it does, being able to apply it to your work can also be really mm-hmm. difficult, because if you're thinking too much about all of this stuff in this intellectual space, I mean, at least for me, I feel my way through my work. I can't yeah. think my way through my work. So I have to go back to a place where I, I kind of have to forget all of this and then apply it afterward, apply it like mm-hmm. where things are broken, you know, apply it. And when we talk about discovery, drafting and revision, we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, but yeah, repeating all of this stuff, although it feels like I heard it once, I should right? understand I it. I should no, know it. It took me no. it took me years to figure it out. I mean, I've had people teaching, you know, a lot of this stuff to me. And there are some things that people taught that after a while, I was like, well, no, that's not correct. You know, mm-hmm. and then after I did more kind of, I guess you could call it research, studying stories, analyzing stories, breaking yes. them down, figuring it out. Yes. Um, you know, the more I did that, the more I realized how all of this stuff comes together to work. So um, being able to, I think it is one of the hardest things to teach. I really mm-hmm. do. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn, and it took me absolutely forever. So um, so I love that you're repeating this back. I think that that is very important. You have to revisit these topics over and over and over again. So people listening, you're going to need to listen to these episodes over and over and over again, a number yeah. of times, and apply them to stories as you think critically about with about them and engage with them, um, and and that's how you kind of internalize all this stuff so that you understand how it works, and yeah. then you have to forget it all, write whatever it is you're writing, and then go back to it. Um, but once you have that understanding, you can then apply it to your own writing. Then you're developing that level of expertise with story that will allow you to do really fun, really interesting things. So to kind yeah. of like break out from the the standard, you know, easy formula that we lay out so that anybody can write a story that will work with these anchor scenes or, or whatever. Um, once you have kind of internalized and you understand how all of this stuff works, then you can start having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's impacting the way that I read also, yes. you know, mm-hmm. just um, and I'm, I'm getting more out of any show mm-hmm. that I watch or any book that I'm reading right now yeah. by trying to to kind of apply this stuff while I'm doing that. So mm-hmm. it's awesome. Yay. Um, so to move us into today's conversation and again, kind of revisiting, like we've talked about what makes a character and the definition mm-hmm. of a character, um, characters live the story and we mm-hmm. learn who they are by what they say and what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I love your description for this. You call it characters in action. So yes. let's talk about that. Uh, starting with talking, starting mm-hmm. with dialogue. So in the spirit of the thing I love most in the whole wide world, define <laughs> your goddamn terms. Lonnie Danrich, what is dialogue? Dialogue is simply what characters say. 
And and that's it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean a conversation between two people. I think a lot of people mistake the dye in it for meaning two, you know, which mm-hmm. you will find in your chemistry formulas, but that's not what it means here. Actually, it, I believe it comes from Greek, which is um, a cross uh, conversation or something like that. I, I don't know. I looked it up and I don't remember. Uh, bottom line is um, it is it is the, you know, the sharing of, of words and of speech, you know. Mm-hmm. So it it doesn't necessarily again mean a conversation between two people um but in fiction it's simply what a character actually says but that can also refer to kind of internal dialogue like when you have somebody mm-hmm. who's writing in first person right basically the entire novel is dialogue because you're hearing their mm. speech it's written in their voice so you have which is why i love because i love writing dialogue more than anything and so when i write in first person i am in heaven i love it it's very limiting with pov there's some things you can't do there every choice that you make in fiction has strengths and and drawbacks you know um but i do love that you can write so fully within the voice of your character and write what they would say um but even in like third person if you share somebody's internal thoughts directly like that's dialogue such as like if he's you know what the hell is she talking about he thought you know what the hell is she talking about is actually his dialogue it's his internal dialogue but it's still dialogue dialogue. Um, And a monologue when one character makes an extended uninterrupted speech is also in the way that we're talking about it here, dialogue. Okay, cool. All right. So one of your phrases that I've always liked is, well, dialogue, right? Dialogue in action. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean that dialogue can sometimes get preempted to deliver information. And if you remember Mm -hmm. that every word that your character says is action moving toward a goal of some sort, you know, maybe the goal is uh, consoling a friend, you know, in Mm -hmm. crisis, and that's the goal of their dialogue, then that's fine. They're trying to do something by speaking, we are always trying to do something. Now, a lot of times that is, uh, we're speaking to, you know, convey information sometimes, you know, um, and that's fine. But a lot of times we find dialogue being um, kind of uh, taken to just exposit information at the reader, you know? Um, And so when the only purpose behind the dialogue is, well, as you know, like if you have two characters, (laughs) there's the as you know, Mary dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. You have two characters who shared an experience and for reasons of, I don't even know, to let the reader know, they'll say, oh, yes, as you know, Mary, there was this time when we, you know, wrestled a crocodile or whatever. And and they explain to each other all the events of something that happened, you know, that the two of them were there for. So they, like, if you and I have an experience together, we'll be like, oh, my God, remember that time we were in the store and that thing happened? And you're like, yeah, that thing, right? That's how that dialogue happens when both people know what they're talking about. Right. Um, so a lot of times we will uh, write the, um, what I call the hell scene, right? Where you have to have two characters or a character explaining to another character, like, what the fuck is going on? And that the... Um, it's, it's basically just about exposition, you know, expositing mm-hmm. information. 
So, but everything, again, if you think of dialogue as action, if you remember always that dialogue is action, and you also remember that you can do two things at once, then you, because there's a certain amount of exposition that is necessary. You cannot have a story make sense if you don't have some exposition in there. You have to explain things like you have to, or your reader is going to be like, I don't even know what the hell's going on here. Now, <laughs> if... If you um, if you are kind to yourself, you will limit the amount of backstory that is required, the amount of history that is required to be understood in order to mm-hmm. uh, to understand what's happening in the story. You will you will try to limit the need when you're building the story, when you're in discovery, uh, mm-hmm. the need for complete and total hellish exposition. But but overall, you're going to need some of it. Um, and usually, like especially, you'll find like in a TV series that you end up having an exposition fairy character. This is the one who explains everything every week, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, for instance, in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it was Giles, right? Yes. Poor, poor Giles had poor to Giles. constantly explain. And one of the things that they did was they would have, first of all, a number of people in that scene. So we have things bouncing off. There would be a number of things going on between those characters in that scene, right? And um, Giles, his job was to, so his objective in the story was to tell these kids what they needed to know so that whatever demon of the week it was wouldn't kill them, right? So he had a clear goal. It was dialogue as action, but Mm -hmm. it's also really, really dry, you know. So um, when you have a situation where you have um, a a, like series in which you need to have that expositional character, um, you can build into those scenes other things that are happening. You know, like we've had scenes with Giles explaining Demon of the Week when um, Xander and Willow, spoilers, uh, were were having an illicit affair. And so they were like giving each other looks. And so we had... We had narrative happening at the same time that Giles would, you know, exposit about the demon. So one of the things that you want to be careful of is to give your exposition fairy uh, some goals in the scene, to give the scene some narrative, uh, that it's doing something narratively as well as expositing in that moment. You know, that other things are happening. One of the things that we often forget as writers is that we can do two things at once. Um, There's this, you know, there's this whole thing like in the beginning of a novel, this happens a lot where people are like, okay, for the first 20 pages, I'm just setting up. I'm just setting Mm -hmm. up. I'm not having any action happen. There's no conflict going on. This story hasn't started. I'm going to just set up everything. Fact of the matter is that you can tell your story walking. Like you can get that conflict in action at the same time as you set up who these characters are. Show your characters in action and you will show us who they are and set up your world and all that kind of stuff. You can have your conflict rolling at the same time. There's no reason why you can't. So you can do double duty. And as a matter of fact, I think in writing you should be as efficient as possible get your narrative rolling at the same time that you're explaining everything right Mm -hmm. um but the hell scenes are necessary they happen all the time don't think you can avoid exposition you cannot but if you remember that dialogue should always be action that there should always be narrative in flight in every single scene then you're going to be okay Oh, I like narrative in flight well and I, I do love it too just I mean knowing you like write your story walking is such a Lonnie Dianrich thing to say. 
because <laughs> I will sit down with tea and scones and some lovely exposition and I can spend time there and be perfectly happy. And you don't do that. Oh, no. And uh, so it's just it's like. It's just really cute to me that that absolutely I have aligns. No patience. I know. I know. <laughs> so funny. Um, I, so yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, it's it's a real personality thing, which is what you're looking for, you know, in your yes. in your characters. And mm-hmm. last episode we talked about making characters distinctive, and to me, mm-hmm. I think dialogue is the first thing I think about because when I get to know somebody, I pay attention to how they talk, right? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. if you gave me nothing but a written transcript from every single chipperish host with no (laughs) names and no context, (laughs) I would know who said what, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that would be a really fun game. Mm -hmm. Oh, it would. Right? I think it would be fun. But how do you write distinctive dialogue for different characters? So, like, within character for each character without using things like signature catchphrases or really <laughs> bad accents you know like I don't like when I'm thinking about that is it something that comes up organically as you're getting to know each character is it something you do with intention does it need to stand out more for your protagonist and your antagonist than other people is do you have any thoughts on on that yeah, I, I think that you want your dialogue to sound like the person, you know, to sound the way that they would. And if that's a challenge, and it can really be because you know your your character, but to, to step outside into this technical space where like, well, how w- are they going to frame their words, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how are they going to? Um, and a lot of it depends on where they're from. Like everybody, I think at this point has taken that online quiz where you, you say, do I call it pop or soda? And then they tell you where you're from. Because the answer is Coke. (laughs) You're from the South. Correct. Up up here in the North, it's soda. So those are the kinds of things that that can contribute. Like those are things that you can study to make sure that your, your dialogue is accurate to this character. Another thing is that if you have a placeholder person in mind. Like if I was basing a character on you, Kelly, I know you so well, I know your speech patterns so well that I could probably base dialogue with a fair amount of accuracy on what you would say and the way that you would say it, you know? So there's that. The thing that can be really, really hard is if you if you don't do your homework, if you write characters who are from a certain place and you use the wrong language but it just mm-hmm. doesn't come off as uh you know as genuine so it takes it takes research a, a cheap way to just you know skip like kind of cheat at it is to just base it on somebody you know and write what they would say you know mm-hmm. because you don't have to study you just like okay so I have this woman from Georgia and then I can just write you and then there you <laughs> go I can write the way that you speak you know um so there are certain things like that basing it on people you know um uh, to make it feel genuine using a placeholder whose uh whose speech patterns you know pretty well that you've mm-hmm. studied a lot so you can kind of like make it sound like like them in your head. The other thing is to think about getting to know everything about this person and think about how they would express themselves. Some people, like myself, are loquacious and will just talk all day, just and uh, go off on little tangents. 
Uh, I think that if my dialogue was ever, you know, if my like my speech was ever transcribed, there would be like a thousand dashes as I go off into this <laughs> tangent, go off into that little tangent. It takes me literally forever to finish a goddamn sentence, you know, or <laughs> finish a thought. Um, and so some people are like that. Um, some people are going to have certain verbal uh, tics. You know, mm-hmm. I say, you know, a lot. I say like a lot. And you don't want that in your dialogue. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but every now and again, to throw something like that in, to give it that sense of that character, you don't want to literally write dialogue the way people speak because that's unintelligible. Yeah. We're going to talk about that in a second. But thinking about the way that people speak, the way that they express themselves, the kinds of words that they use. I am actually like an incredibly foul person. I curse a fair amount. <laughs> I, I curse a fair amount in like even in the podcast and when I'm teaching mm-hmm. my classes at the university and not even nearly as much as I curse, especially when I'm feeling particularly salty, uh, when I'm just talking to, you know, people like, you know, casually and personally. Yeah. So I'm, I'm an incredibly foul human being. And that's also like those kinds of choices, like the kind of people who will say sugar instead of shit. Like mm. that is a dialogue choice that tells you who that character is. And especially if you have people who are like that, who are like maybe falsely sweet, you know, mm-hmm. who, who use dialogue and present themselves to be something that they are actually not in actual action because those the action that your character takes in dialogue shows us who they are but in dialogue your character is going to lie you know and so there are things that they're going to say that that belie who they really are and you'll see that difference in the actual action that they take so getting that dialogue distinctive really means developing an ear for like how mm-hmm. people speak and the kinds of things that they say, for the patterns in their speech, for the way that they express themselves, where they're from, what kind of words and phrases they're going to use based on that, their age, what kind of words and phrases they're going to use based on that. There are a whole bunch of variables that go into how a person is going to express themselves and how well they're going to express themselves, how clearly they're going to express themselves, and how much how they express themselves and the things that they say align with who they truly are. Those are all things that that go into uh, using dialogue to to make a character distinctive, to show uh, show who they are. And it can be really, really fun, but it's also really complicated. And then you've got like writers like Aaron Sorkin, right? Aaron Sorkin is a genius, but all of his characters speak exactly the same way. They now, all sound exactly like the same person. All of They're them. all exactly the same. They're all exactly the same. Um, and the thing is that that Aaron Sorkin writes dialogue like music, you know, mm-hmm. and his characters speak in ways that are um, that are really interesting. And that distinction I don't miss because Sorkin is doing music. You yes. know, Sorkin yes. is writing music and that's and that's a little mm-hmm. bit different. So when I say all of these things that make your characters distinct, if there's something that you're doing with your dialogue where, you know, you're writing music the way that Sorkin does, where your dialogue has that rhythm and that pace and that back and forth and, and the speechifying that he's able to do, um, if that's your thing then that's your thing. Go do your thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think that Sorkin deliberately makes that choice as opposed to doing it because he just decided he didn't want to make his characters distinctive in their now, speech. I watch mm-hmm. each episode of The West Wing like a dance. Um, and it's fun it and it's great. But it's I expect beautiful. that, you know, that pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting. You were talking about thinking about somebody's speech 
patterns, because I think this is such a great way to use some like really fun qualitative analysis yeah. in your life oh. for, for the sheer joy of it. Sure. Um, but I've, I've been thinking about this just with like people in my life and trying to translate that to writing mm-hmm. into characters. Like, for example, if I ever get a text message from my brother, that's more than two lines. Somebody mm-hmm. has stolen that man's phone. That ain't him. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Right. Is like a one, two or three word answer. And maybe if it's super important, a whole sentence with punctuation, but never more than yeah. that. Ever. And some people are like that. You know, yeah. I mean, some people are going to be like really stilted in the actual amount that they, they speak. They, mm-hmm. um, but they may express themselves in other ways through their actions. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So obviously, the way a character talks is a huge part of who mm-hmm. they are. So when you're thinking about dialogue functioning as an aspect of character, mm-hmm. what what do you need to pay attention to? Like, what does that mean? Well, like I said, your character is what your character does, right? So you know who a character is by their action, but what your character says is also action. It's just sometimes it's lying, right? Mm -hmm. It's dishonest. And it's not even necessarily that they are liars. A lot of times characters are dishonest with themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, you have a character who believes in quote unquote brutal honesty. That shows us that they're probably more interested in brutality than honesty. (laughs) I have found that to be my experience with those who are like, hey, I'm just being honest, you know. So you can see who a character is in what they choose to say, what they choose not to say, um, how they say what they say. Uh, people mm-hmm. who try very, very hard to be kind to people who don't try to be kind at all. Um, people who are gentle, people who are not. Character who has trouble speaking their mind can, can exhibit to us that they are timid, mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily stupid. Right. You know, they might be picking things up and seeing things that maybe other people aren't seeing because they shut up a little bit Mm -hmm. more. Right. Because they don't talk as much. A character who speaks with an extensive vocabulary shows us that they are smart. Oh, don't. I see. I saw you make that face. (laughs) I saw you make that face. And here's the thing. (laughs) You have you have a specific vocabulary that you pull out when necessary, but you don't use it to show off. You don't use it. You use it to. um, And I, I think I do, too. When I have something I really want to say in a very specific way, I'll pull out a specific word. But for the most part, I usually try to speak in regular, everyday, direct language. And so do you. I've noticed. I do try. I do try. You use you use your vocabulary to be to be the most uh, like I think um, specifically expressive, accurately expressive. You know, Um, and there are some people though who will use you know big you know ten dollar words just so that they can not be expressive so that they can put kind of a gate between them and everybody else so that the only people yeah. who can communicate with them are people who can who can have a you know dictionary right handy to be able to look <laughs> up all this shit right so that also shows you how different kinds of characters will use their the vocabulary that they have at the ready uh, you can also people who have a very limited vocabulary who are also incredibly smart Mm-hmm. You know, um, but because but they use their limited vocabulary in a way that is very specific and very expressive and still very clear. I still will side on the side of um, clear, simple, direct language every time, every day and twice on Sundays, because I think that that is the best way to express things. I find that as, as I do more and more academic reading, I l- 
lose patience <laughs> with this kind of academic writing that is all about pulling out all of these, you know, really, I mean, every now and again, there is one word that is so perfect, you just have to use it. Like, I get mm-hmm. it. I've done that. I know, right? If it's if it's so accurate, you know, you use it. But if you just use all of those words all the time, that actually demonstrates to me an intellectual insecurity, that you are not comfortable expressing yourself in regular everyday dime store words because um, because you're afraid that people won't they won't have the opportunity to show off how incredibly educated you are, you know? Oh yeah. So there are yeah. a million different ways that you can use vocabulary like that with um, with different characters. So so that can be really fun. It can show them, it can show off how smart they are, it can show off how insecure they are. It can show off mm-hmm. how secure they are. Yeah. Um, those are all different choices that you can make. Also a character who uses really big words, but incorrectly. The, the lovely malapropism of which Shakespeare was so fond, right? Um, <laughs> that, that those are those are really fun um, things to use too to show us who a character is. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. No, it's funny you say that because it's, it's one of my favorite ironies about mm-hmm. academia is yeah. that it is an institution whose purpose is teaching and learning and yet as an academic, you will be criticized for being too clear and for being simple. accessible. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like I, I mean, I used to get dinged for that all the time um, yeah. when I was a professor because I, I don't know, write simply and clearly. Now, my research yeah. methodology is fucking awesome. Do not question it. My <laughs> citations are perfect, but my words are simple. Are. You know, simple and clear. But yeah. I would well, that- quite often be criticized for that lack of formality. Yeah, uh, see, that's academic insecurity. I have yeah. no patience for that. I, mm-hmm. I, I have a textbook that I use in my class in which the person writing it uh, had that um, was not like an actual academic, mm-hmm. you know, but like wrote in that way, I think out of an essential insecurity. And also the fact that like, if you write in a way that nobody can understand, then they need you to explain it to them. Yeah, uh, because they can't just read your book and understand it, you need to explain it to them. So a lot of times I would read what what he was writing, and I would go in with my students. And part of the reason why I chose this text was so they would think critically about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, and, you know, not everything in this text is correct. I think yeah. I disagree with quite a bit of it. And I want to see what you agree and disagree with. Don't just agree with it because it's a text assigned in a class. Yeah. And um, and that was really fun to see them start to kind of pick out the things that were, you know, pardon my French bullshit. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that's, that's really fun. But yeah, I don't think that I think that anybody and this is, I know is a huge problem in academia, but I don't think that anybody who writes an academic book with the intent of making it as inaccessible as possible is at all interested in teaching. They're interested no. in being smart. They're not yeah. interested in teaching. And to me, like, what's the point of academia if not to share that knowledge? Yeah. So so that's the no. thing that kind of drives me nuts. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and I think we have different expectations, right, with, with the text that we're interacting with. So a textbook yeah. is almost expected to be dense and not make any yeah. sense. But when it comes to any kind of story, we're going to expect that to to be readable. You need um, that clarity. Yes. Yeah. And storytelling. And, absolutely. And you have expectations for dialogue, whether you realize it or not. Yes. And I had heard, you know, when I was learning about writing or just, you know, interested in starting to study kind of this idea of writing 
realistic dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then I became a qualitative researcher and started doing transcription of interviews and focus groups. And that dialogue is realistic, but terrible, terrible for fiction. Oh, Uh, so bad. So the way we actually talk in life would suck in a book or a TV show. Absolutely. It's it's so bad. So Mm -hmm. how do you make your character sound real, but still write good dialogue? Oh, man, that is such a delicate dance. It really is. For instance, like I said before, right, you don't want to use like I say, like, and you know, if you transcribe this conversation, (laughs) please don't. (laughs) It will be it will be well, wait until we get to the homework, because that's actually part of the homework. Um, (laughs) um, You'd have me saying like, um, you know, constantly, I may Uh say that more than any other words that I use throughout the whole thing. Okay. You know? Well, if you do that and you're interested, I do have qua- uh, quanti- qualitative uh, analysis software that will actually count um, that kind of stuff. So if you just really want to nerd out on that, let me know because it's fun. I I actually might. I actually might. But um, <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, you want believable dialogue, not realistic dialogue, uh, which is kind of true for your fiction too. You want your fiction to be believable, but not realistic, right? Um, mm. Believable, you know, dragons, right? Are not realistic. As far as I know, to my ex- to my knowledge, there are no dragons. Dragons are not a real thing, right? Um, but having them in your fiction is useful because dragons serve as a metaphor for a particular kind of danger, for a particular kind of greed, depending on what kind of story you're telling. Um, and so as, as a metaphor in mythology, you can have these wild, fantastical things that are not realistic to the world that we know, and yet are incredibly believable. So in a similar way, you're going to look at dialogue, right? You don't want realistic dialogue. Reality is a mess. You want it. Reality itself is not believable. Have y'all watched Tiger King? Right? Uh, Yeah. Uh, You know, so if you haven't, if you guys haven't, just trust me, it is exactly one of those things that reality is stranger than fiction and is reality is not believable. Um, But but fiction needs to be and so does your dialogue. Making your dialogue realistic requires having a sense of a pattern and a music to people's dialogue to the way that they speak the way that they speak, putting that in at the same time. They speak in complete sentences, which is something Mm -hmm. that people do not do. They finish their thought without trailing off necessarily (laughs) into a completely different, you know, tangent. Uh, You keep them focused. One of the things about fiction is that if fiction were written like real life, there would be so many things going on. You wouldn't be able to keep track of anything. Mm -hmm. You are isolating in fiction everything that relates to the story that you want to tell. And anything that is does not relate to that gets filtered out. So you're doing that with your dialogue, too. You're filtering out all of the nonsense, all of the um all the you knows, all the trailing off uh, and and making sure that everything that your character says is in pursuit of some sort of goal, whatever that goal is. It doesn't have to need to be their, you know, central narrative conflict main goal, right? It just needs to be uh, the goal of the scene or the goal of the moment in that scene, the beat in that scene. What is it that they want in that moment? That's what they're talking towards. That's what they're speaking towards. So you think of that as action. You think of that as working toward a goal and you would filter out everything that would not be about that goal. That would just kind of, it, it comes across like, just like, 
radio noise, you know. Um, so you filter all of that out. You, you give it a spit shine. And then you add in the character, the distinctive ways in which somebody would express something. Um, you know, you think about the ways in which in which I might respond if somebody asked me a question about, like, what is my favorite childhood memory? Like, the way that I might respond to that question would be different from the way that you would respond to that question. The way that I would phrase my, um, my story would be different from the way that you would phrase your story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but knowing how your character, um, that each character would do that in a distinctive way, would answer the same question in a distinctive way, you put that in. Um, and again, all of those, all of those little things that speak to who that character is and, and the way that they express themselves and when do they tell the truth and when do they lie, all of that is part of it. But the specific patterns of speech that you have in in believable dialogue also you can't be too perfect at the same time that you don't want um you know and trailing off all the time you want to trail off on occasion right mm-hmm. if you have a reason like uh, if, if a character trails off in fiction then we know that there's a reason they're distracted right that is a cue it's a cue for us as readers to be like oh something's going on Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're so distracted, they can't finish their thought. Whereas uh, all of us in real life are always so distracted that we never finish a thought. I don't know if I've ever finished a thought. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so so when you have somebody uh, stumble over their words or trail off or say uh, a lot, like uh, if you put it in fiction or in dialogue, it means something. So mm-hmm. everything that you do in fiction, everything that you do in dialogue needs to mean something. So anything that is that is abnormal for um, speech, you know, if somebody starts saying, uh, 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 that would indicate a nervousness that would mm-hmm. indicate something distracting them. Um, and then that's a really great way to cue that something is going on with that character that's kind of throwing them off, you know, in that moment. So um, so you use broken speech, you use uh, trailing off all that kind of stuff to actually deliberately indicate things that are going on with that character. So those are ways that you make your dialogue believable and not necessarily realistic. Because sometimes I will say, uh, and trail off just simply because my brain just stopped working in that moment. (laughs) My brain reboots like a very old computer. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're so written dialogue or like dialogue in a story has text, text and subtext. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So very quickly with text, we're talking about the, the dialogue you can see, read, whatever. Right. But subtext is the meaning behind what's not said or how something is said, all the other things that are communicated by dialogue and action. And your reader is very cued into that. Your reader is going to pick up on everything, you know, so anything that you put in that dialogue and in your story needs to be deliberate or your reader will stop trusting you. If your character trails off and there's no reason for it, your reader's Mm going to stop trusting you because they're like, well, this happened and then there was nothing there. So now I don't know when, when is, when am I being cued into something and when is it just Mm -hmm. random whatever, you know? Yeah. And we also have to think about what your character would and would not talk about. Right. And so this comes back to your, your character triangle, right? With strengths, Mm -hmm. weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause we don't talk about our vulnerabilities. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes 
in very specific circumstances, we do with yeah. people that we trust, with people that mm -hmm. we um, have developed a, a, a deep and close relationship with. We will, when forced to, yeah, speak about our vulnerability. I just had a therapy session with my therapist on Monday, and I sat down at the beginning, like I do every week, and I said, "Carrie, how are you?" Right? <laughs> every week and I'm like I don't want to talk about me and she's like I know but that's kind of the purpose you know and then eventually I get into it and I'm like all right here's this about me blah -de blah -de blah -de blah and then by the end of the 50 minutes I have some kind of you know uh breakthrough realization like oh I guess that's why I do that you know mm -hmm. uh but every week it's the same thing because people don't want to talk about their vulnerabilities um in general there are characters there are people there are characters who will weaponize their vulnerability who love mm -hmm. to talk about their vulnerability because a the vulnerability isn't really real but b it's something that will make people feel sorry for them so they weaponize mm. it mm -hmm. uh, so that can definitely be something that a character does but when it comes to actual real vulnerability um, unless we are forced to by a social contract such as therapy or uh, or we're in a situation with uh, somebody's something's really upsetting us and we're talking to somebody we deeply deeply trust um, you're not going to hit on vulnerability so people are to talk around their vulnerabilities and sometimes what people don't talk about is a big clue as to what it is that's really upsetting them or what it is that's really getting to them uh, so vulnerability is kind of a fun it's fun to play with because you need to be able to express your character's vulnerability but your character will do almost anything to not talk about it so um, so you have to show that you know, you have to show that vulnerability. You have to show how that's there. And um, and when you tie in vulnerability with conflict, and when we get to talking about conflict, we'll definitely talk about that a lot more, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, you're tying it directly to the narrative movement of the, of the piece. And that makes it a little bit easier to get a clue as to what the vulnerability is. Okay, cool. So on while we're talking about dialogue, I do want to make this very, very clear. How do you feel about dialect spelling? Oh, in dialogue. God. All right. I love Outlander, right? Mm -hmm. I love Outlander. I love Diana Gabaldon. I cannot read the novels. I have to listen to the audiobook because the novels, whenever she writes a Scottish person, and there are lots of Scottish people in this story, uh, she writes these half words spelled out phonetically, and I have no idea what they're supposed to be saying or what this means. So I am going to tell you right now, everybody, please, I swear to God, just don't write dialect phonetically. Use the words that the person is actually trying to say, you know, actually saying, and then you can use the speech pattern, right, to indicate mm -hmm. the, the accent, you know, um, so, for instance, like if you have a Southern woman saying something like, oh, hi, bless your heart. Right. You're not going to spell hard H-A-Y-E-R-T or whatever. <laughs> right. There was one time you were talking about how you pronounce pen. Pen. It's a but I had to what? I had to take a well, OK. A long time ago, uh, my accent was a whole lot stronger than it is right now. Yeah. And when I got into academia, I was given the gift of feedback. That my <laughs> gift of feedback. That basically, they said you sound stupid, um, and so we had an accent 
reduction training. Mm -hmm. Like we used mm -hmm. it for a lot of professors from different places. So I took the class just, I mean, I'm willing to learn, you know, right. and it was not until that time as a, a adult later <laughs> in my life that I learned that the thing you write with is called a pen and it has an E in it. That's not a pen, and it doesn't have three syllables. I couldn't hear <laughs> the difference. Like I, I, right? I couldn't hear the difference in pronunciation of those words. Um, so yeah, I, if I wrote like I hear and like I talk, it would be illegible. Like it would just right. absolutely be, you know. And nobody wants to try to figure out what p e i e n means, right? <laughs> You no. know, no, um, they don't. so when you are writing dialogue, use the patterns of speech to get across that dialect. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you can use the, the word choices that people will use will sound like that. They're going to have that kind of Scottish lilt to them. They're going to have that mm -hmm. Southern drawl to them. Right. Yeah. Because it's the it's the words that that it's not just the way you say the words, but it's the words that you choose that often give away the, your background, yeah. how you grew up, how yeah. you were educated, all of these things. Well, like we talk about Buffy, you know, a lot mm -hmm. and Angel um, Spike, yeah. the way he says love, like as uh -huh. a nickname. You know, yeah. is so in character. If Xander right. said that or Giles said that or Buffy said that, it wouldn't work. Exactly. But this, as part of, you know, where he's from, mm -hmm. where that comes from, um, it really does work. So, okay. So we talk about how people talk. And yes. Lonnie, people say a lot of shit. Yes, they do. But to really get to know somebody, we need to see what they do. Because mm -hmm. love is a verb, y'all. It is what you do. <laughs> And not what you say, although I like pretty words a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, pretty but words it, are great, but pretty it's words not are great. action. Um, mm -hmm. But the dialogue is a great way to get to know a character, right? Yes. But to really know them, to, to feel like you know them, their choices really tell you about them. So what when you're thinking about character and choices... Mm -hmm. it, that's not just the end, right? That's not just the climax. Like, what are they right. going to decide when they get to the end? So what what is the role of choices in character, character development, characterization? You know, it's funny because choice is really everything. Choice mm. is so much everything that while we've been talking about character in all these different ways, um, I haven't really talked that much about choice, even though that is the most defining thing about your character. Um, and I think maybe it's because it is the most defining. We're able to talk about everything else because there are these little sections of character. But your character is your character is what your character does. Mm -hmm. People are what they do with the choices that they make, the actions that they take. And when you give a character a horrible, horrible choice, as a writer, that is the best thing that you can do. Make your character choose between two terrible things, between two great things. Um, make them make a choice between two things and you'll see who they are by the choices that they make. And, um, and that becomes really interesting. And a lot of what a character says is not necessarily accurate. The way that we present ourselves is the way that we want to be perceived. And it may not be in line with who we 
genuinely are. And so if you have a character who talks about how much they love puppies and the first thing you see them do is go outside and kick a puppy, you know <laughs> who they really are. Are you going to believe what they said or are you going to believe what they did? Like you're going to mm-hmm. believe what they did. You're going to believe that choice that they made and then you're going to know who mm-hmm. that character is, you know, and that's how you that's how you really find out. So when you're building characters, do you play with those kind of scenarios in your head? Like, do you put your characters through fictional, what would they do here or whatever? Or is it just kind of organically as things come up in the story, deciding what choices that they would make? I'm so curious about this because I think that, like you said, they make choices constantly, right? So how do like, how do you how do you figure out what that character would actually do in different scenarios? Yeah, I don't really think about anything that's outside of my story. I, I put them, you know, in the story and then watch the choices that they make, you know, watch mm-hmm. the things that they do. And as you're writing and this happens, I, I don't know if I know a writer who has, has claimed that this has never happened to them. As you're writing, you'll find that that character does something that you had no idea they were going to do. You know, just like something completely out of left field. And you're like, well, I was writing this novel and then suddenly this character decided this and now it's a completely different thing and I'm just following them, you know. Mm -hmm. As you get to know them, their choices, in the same way that like you can tell when you've been, you know, watching a TV show or a movie series or reading a book series, something that where you've been with one character for a really, really long time and they do something and you're like, that is completely not like that character, yeah. you know? Um, and so you know that because you know that character because you've gotten to know them. So the choices that they make eventually, you're going to know these characters so well that that when you present them with a choice, you know exactly what they're going to do, you know? Okay. So we hear people talk a lot about character arcs, right? On our mm-hmm. podcast, we talk, you know, when Buffy and Angel and Marvel, we talk about character arcs. So yes. what is an arc and why is it important? Oh, God, arcs are so wonderful. Arcs are how our characters change. Characters, um, you know, we're going to talk a lot in, our, I think, season two of the How Story Works conversations about conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and conflict is basically the pressure cooker that your character is under during the, the course of the story. So a character arc is basically the way in which a character changes because of the pressure that the conflict has put on them. So, um, So a character will start out one way and we'll like arc them over the course of the story into something else. Like a lot of times we arc a character, the most common one is we arc them from solitude to community, right? Okay. So we have somebody who's like the rogue and I work alone and then he meets all these, it's usually a guy, and then he meets all these people and he ends up having found family and then at the end he's all about the family. So Guardians of the Galaxy basically, right? Um, you see that in a lot of, a lot of stories we have that kind of an arc. We'll have arcs where characters go from bad to good. We have arcs where characters go from good to bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all because of things that happened within the story that put pressure on that character. Because people generally, I mean, generally, and this is, you know, 
predominantly true with people and because characters are humans they are coded humans they are human experience um they also are the same way and that um and that people generally will not change unless they have no other options if they can do things the way that they have always done things they will do things the way that they have always done things um mm -hmm. So the only reason a character is going to change is because of the pressure that the that the conflict puts on them, that they have no choice. So they have to think differently. They have to behave differently. They have to make different choices. And so because of that pressure, they will then start to make those different choices. And then that's how they arc from one kind of person to another kind of person. Now, does a character have to arc in a story? No, they can start out the story one way and end the same way. Um, your your classic, uh, you know, 1930s mysteries, your Agatha Christie's, you know, um, those kinds of things. Um, the Dorothy Sayers, those books, right? Mm -hmm. uh, those are mysteries in which we have a main character who is solving a mystery. They get all the puzzle pieces. It's really an intellectual exercise to see if you as a reader can put all the puzzle pieces together and figure out who the murderer is. And then at the end, we have the exact same person as we have at the beginning you know um and we don't really see necessarily character arcs in some of those stories and that's okay they don't have to arc but in an emotional story you know in a story that has a, a, an emotional resonance in a story where where the main character and and many of the characters not always just the main one but any of the the side characters can do this too have been tortured and tormented so much and if you're doing your job they have been tortured and tormented <laughs> so much that that they fundamentally change from this experience that adds a very particular kind of weight to that character and that story and it makes us feel this combination of both loss for who the character was in the beginning although mm -hmm. sometimes that's a welcome loss if the character was an asshole in the beginning to to this kind of newfound discovery of who they are now and it's a very complicated emotional space which I think makes character arcs a really well done character arc one of the most rewarding experiences within a story of any kind. So what's the difference between or among a character arc, a character learning a lesson and like a coming of age or is a coming of age an arc? Uh, coming of age, I think, is an arc because we are because a character is growing from one stage to another, right? Okay. And so they are becoming somebody different, um, and and it is the pressure of whatever this life experience is. You know, mm -hmm. the coming of age story is something that happens around this very particular time frame. This going from from like you know teenager to like you know adult or like that kind of transitional space in there where. Um, where a young person will lose their innocence or will um, will do that transition kind of uh, from childhood to adulthood, will learn something from that experience about themselves and then become something different. Um, and so that's generally the coming of age story. But it is that that pressure of no longer being able to be a child within the world anymore and that the experiences that they have show them um, too much for them to ever go back to being who they were, right? So I, I would I would identify that as a coming of age. The, the, you know, what is the lesson that you've learned is like a, 
I don't even know if I want to call it an intellectual arc because it's usually one of those, you know, morality stories, you know, those after school specials, like what did we learn about using a condom every time? Right? <laughs> so the the lesson learned story I find kind of flat and it's not really an arc because I think that the person knows something they didn't know before. Uh, have they necessarily changed fundamentally because they know that maybe? I don't know, but how much? I don't know that it, it necessarily has the deep impact of something that changes us at the core of who we are, you know, okay. uh, the way that a character arc does. So I was thinking about this, uh, a friend of mine who listens to the show asked me yes. to clarify more. Uh, we, we talk, we throw a lot of words out there like planner versus panster. Yes. And she asked me to clarify those terms. So I thought that might be kind of fun to do as we're talking about arcs, right? Mm -hmm. Or thinking about putting them in your story. Because do you need to know where a character arc is going or if a character is going to arc you know, when you're starting out or drafting or, yeah. or planning. Um, but yeah. I did want to go back and, and define those terms more plainly. Okay. The first time I heard that was when I was doing National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, yes. for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was reading Chris Beatty's book, No Plot, No Problem. Yeah. Because I saw oh, it in the I bookstore and I was like, that's perfect. I don't have a plot. Great. I was in that book. I know. I know. <laughs> it's so fabulous. And so they, they were kind of like describing it as just two approaches to writing. Right. Mm -hmm. If you if you want to plan your whole novel out ahead of time, then and that's how you yeah. work. And that's what makes sense to you. Then you would be a planner. Mm -hmm. And if you just literally open a Word document, write chapter one and just go. Yeah. Then that's more flying by the seat of your pants, which is where Hence the word the pants pantster are, yes. comes mm -hmm. from. So mm -hmm. do you have anything to add to that or in thinking about like, number one, the definition and number two, just kind of in this idea of, of building characters? Yeah, your definition is accurate. Absolutely. Um, Yay! I, I, yes, absolutely. Very good. Um, I think, though, that the reason why it can be confusing for some people is that nobody is ever purely one or the other. You mm, exist mm -hmm. on a spectrum. There may be, you may plan out your plot beats, but not know your character beats. Um, you may plan out your character stuff and not have any idea where your plot, how your plot is going to do that. You know, yeah. um, I did that with the fortune quilt. I knew that I wanted to take a character and destroy her life. But I had no ah. idea what I was going to do with it. I had no idea how I was going to do that. I just made that up as I went along. So I think that because it, it feels like a very straightforward definition to me, you know, mm -hmm. but I also know that I've always I've always kind of opened up the only time I've ever opened up a, a page and started writing without having done like even a little discovery work uh, was my first novel time off for good behavior, which I did for NaNoWriMo, which I had no intention of doing anything with. And it ended up, you know, launching my career as a writer. And I just started writing and had no idea where anything was going from there. But there's a certain amount of planning. There's a certain amount of, of pantsing that I think every writer does in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that the difference between plotting and and pantsing is mostly how you identify <laughs> where mm -hmm. you feel comfortable placing yourself on the spectrum between plotter and pantser. Um, and so really, I, I'm not sure... I think that you're you're going to do both no matter what, no matter what, yeah. even on the extreme ends of the spectrum, you're going to have a little bit of plotter in you if you're a pantser, you're going to have a little bit of pantser in you if you're a plotter, because stories take you by surprise, you know, um, yeah. on a, uh, like every time that they will always take you at some point, your story is going to take you by surprise, yeah. something is going to happen that you did not count on, you know? 
Yeah. And also at certain points, uh, a pantser is going to think ahead and think about what they want to do and how they want this to, to figure out. So, um, so the distinction in and of itself may dictate how you respond or how you, how you approach your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, uh, how important is that distinction? I don't know. And yeah. you're a mix of you're a mix of them, no matter what. I right. think every writer is right. a mix. Yeah. And you might switch from project to project. Oh, I do. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. So I just I thought that was kind of a, I was like, oh, yeah, I meant to go back and answer that question. Well, so. I'm glad I'm glad she asked. Who's the friend? Patty. Oh, hi, hi Patty. Patty. We love the you, Patty. Patty compels you. We love her so much. <laughs> All right. So to wrap up our conversation about arcs, what are some of your favorites? character arcs. Oh, God. Well, the first one, as soon as you asked that question, is Wesley from Angel. Um, yep. Wesley, who went from the goofy rogue demon hunter to dark, dark Wesley, which is my favorite Wesley. 85% Coco Wesley. Um, he, <laughs> he went so dark and it was so fun to watch and then to like watch him come back from that. Um, I really love the arc of Sawyer and Lost. Um, Mm -hmm. Sawyer, of course, being one of my favorite characters ever. And I've been jonesing to watch Lost lately. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had kind of like a Lost bug. Uh, I think I need to get back to watching that. watch Sawyer with glasses reading books? Because I will watch that all day long. Oh, my God. He's, He's super good. He's so good. I love Arya in Game of Thrones. Um, mm. Arya in Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. who's like her story arc in Game of Thrones is definitely very much a coming of age arc, but it is also a huge, huge uh, character arc. Um, I think uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad is interesting. Walter mm-hmm. White in Breaking Bad is really interesting because at first blush, you look at it and you think this is what happens when a good man is very good at a bad thing. And honestly, I don't think that that's the Walter White arc i think this is what happens when a weak man has the freedom to make the choices he would make oh yeah because i watched the first few episodes because you rave yeah. about it so much and i was like yeah. this is not a good man i don't he's see not it. a good man he's not a he's criminal not. but he's not a good man no he's a weak man he's yes. good because that's easier and when it's yes. no longer easier to be good then he goes bad and i find that so crunchy and when I first started thinking about it I you know I just went to oh this is what happens when a good man goes bad but the more I thought about it you know, mm-hmm. the more I'm like, no. And so mm-hmm. um, Walter Walter White and Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is very difficult to watch. Yeah. Um, it is very difficult to watch. But if you're a writer, I think that 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 it's it's an incredibly valuable show to watch in the way that it's written, the fact that it uses fractured teases in a way that don't make me want to throw things. Mm-hmm. Um I and and the acting is fantastic, the writing is fantastic, and it's pretty much excellent all the way through. And f- if for nothing more than the I am the one who knocks speech. I haven't uh, gotten there yet. Is, Oh, okay, honey. That is a pivotal moment in the in the run for Walter White. And I, I find it really interesting. So I find it really hard to watch Breaking Bad. But I'm mm-hmm. so, so glad that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so what uh, what are the the character arcs that you think about? I, I had trouble thinking about female character arcs. Yeah. I, in our notes, I was like, are there women? I was pulling, I was looking for like female character arcs. And you actually found a few really good ones. Oh, yeah. Because that's, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I went. I was like, "All right, bring me all the badass girls." Um, uh-huh. I do love Wesley's arc on yeah. Angel and Still Dead very, very much. But, but equal in my heart is Faith. 
um, yeah. how she arcs on both shows. I think Faith's mm-hmm. character arc is um, is amazing. Uh, yes. Sarah, Sarah on Orphan Black, mm-hmm. the the Sarah that we start with is not the Sarah that we end yeah. with. You know, and yeah. that whole show. Oh dear God, that show <laughs> is just I've only amazing. Seen the first few seasons, but oh it was my so God. Good. Um, I just started watching the the Good Place, and it's great. Um, Eleanor arcs, yeah, on the Good Place. Um, mm-hmm. Olivia Pope in Scandal, yeah, um, and complicated and layered arcing, mm-hmm. not just from one thing to another, but from one thing to something else. Like it's it's an evolution and then of to arcs. something else, a real evolution. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's it's really well done. Um, mm-hmm. Elle Woods from Legally Blonde, which I will mm-hmm. argue is both fantastic narratively and for curriculum. That is a fantastic right. movie to show good pedagogy, and I love it. Um, I love it. And uh, Katniss Everding from The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. I think her yeah. arc is is really really well done. So awesome. Those are yeah, some of my those favorites. are really good. I haven't seen I haven't seen The Hunger Games. Um, it's been a long time since I've watched Legally. I'd read the maybe. books. Read the. Yeah. I like the books better. Read the books. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. I had to, I started and then I had, I remember thinking they were really good. I started, but really I good. had young daughters at that. My daughters no. were young at that time, yeah. and uh, one of the characters, one of the young characters, died, and I was like, nope, mm-hmm. done, no. done, done. Yeah, not, it's not reading it's, about dead kids. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the theme of the whole book, so maybe not for you. Um. But the, well, maybe now my kids are older, it might not bother yeah, me as much. They're, they're you know, so those good. Were little kids. Yeah. They're so so yeah. good. Um, All right, cool. So we also hear like in those conversations about character arcs, we hear a lot about character breaks, right? Yes. So like Mm -hmm. we said, once we know a character, when we see them do something out of character, like it's jarring or it feels wrong. Mm -hmm. And if it's too bad, it can throw us completely out of the story. Like, yes, if you called me and said, hey, baby, you want to watch the Muppet movie? Like I would assume (laughs) you were being held hostage. You know, that's my that's my emergency text. We already have that set up. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, If Hermione Granger got a house elf, if Spike threw an elegant dinner party, you know, if the doctor stood aside while a planet was destroyed, like we -hmm. would call that a character break. Right. So right. define our terms for us, darling. What is a character right. break? A character break is when a character does or says something suddenly out of character, usually for the sake of a joke or to accommodate a plot device, and then snaps right back with no earning of the change in the character. And that is really significant. Any of those things that you threw out, if mm-hmm. we had had a significant pressure put on a character that pushed them to that point, I mean, doctor, what would make the doctor stand by while a planet was destroyed? Oh, like shit would have good. to go down right so it's not necessarily a break just because they do something out of character as a matter of fact a character arc the whole definition of a character arc is that they end up doing things that are out of character for who they were in the beginning but because it was earned slowly over time because we're seeing that pressure slowly tick them into this new space right okay Um, then it makes sense then we're like okay then the fact that they're doing something out of character is Actually, what makes that so rewarding? I'll take away your bucket. Bucket. Um, (laughs) So if they're responding to Wesley to to conflict and pressure in service of the story, that is great writing. And if you're trying to wedge a character into something for plot or joke, then you're breaking them. I love that distinction. 
Yeah. And the definition, I mean, really, the reason you know it's a break is because the character will be themselves and then all of a sudden will do something out of out of character for a joke or for a plot device and then snap right back like a rubber band and then they're themselves again. Right. Okay. Without earning anything. So that's the difference between an arc and a break. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. That is fantastic. All right. So we covered a lot of ground. You got we some did. homework. I love that that you have homework that you didn't put in here because you know how much I love being surprised by homework. Oh, because I God. wrote something and now you have something. So do you want to go oh, first? Oh, okay. Well, no, you go ahead and go first, and then I'll add mine to it. Okay, mine's very simple. No, mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. So I was thinking. You know, I've been thinking a lot about favorite shows and favorite books and why I love what I love. Um, and so last year I watched Orphan Black with my sweetie, and it is like our favorite show to quote to each other constantly. Mm-hmm. So last night we were talking about which of the clone, which of the clones would do best and worst in home quarantine, uh-huh. and why. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, wait, wait, we can take like this, you know, hellfire of reality mm-hmm. that we have right now and turn it into a character exercise. So yeah, for like homework, it. like imagine some of your favorite characters or the characters you're writing right now in a 30 day home quarantine. And you can pair them up if you want to, or you can isolate mm-hmm. them. Um, oh, my what do they, God. How do they behave? What choices do they make? When they start talking to themselves and inanimate objects, what does their dialogue <laughs> sound like? You know, what do they miss most? What What's the first thing they'll do when it's safe to go back in the world? Like, oh, I think how it would does it be, change them? How does it change them? You know, oh, that's I, I think it could be a really fun character sketch. I love that. That's great homework. I adore it. Okay, well, mine is complementary to yours. Oh, um, perfect. Because mine is mine is actually a skills run, right? Okay. Um, so what y'all should do, clearly, if you're listening to us, you listen to podcasts. Um, I would choose a highly conversational podcast. Uh, this one, actually, it's probably okay. Uh, there are times where we read from, you know, pre-written stuff, and you can kind of tell because that's when, at least me, I'm making a little more sense. I sound a little more coherent. <laughs> um, but... Take a minute or two minutes of a conversational podcast um, and actually transcribe word for word what everybody is saying, like word for word, pause for pause, um for um, and then take those two minutes, take all of that out, rewrite that so that that conversation makes sense. Use write it as dialogue, write in the voice of each of those speakers and think about what their voice is like and write it that way. That is going to give you a sense of the difference between realistic dialogue and believable dialogue. I love that homework. So yeah, that it's a skills fantastic. it's a skills run. It's, it's one like of those it. things that will yeah, that will absolutely when I was in college, uh my professor had me eavesdrop mm-hmm. on people. And I think that a podcast is a much, much better way to do it. It's much he less had rude and you also, eavesdrop on people for the purpose of transcription, right? Transcription. Just to clarify. So we had to <laughs> yeah. We had we had to sit in like a public place like the student union and mm-hmm. just listen in on somebody's conversation and write down everything they they said at that time that was the only unstructured dialogue you had access to because people weren't creating all these podcasts in their basement you know right uh, but because you have so many podcasts especially conversational podcasts like um the uh if you if you watch survivor the rob has a podcast podcasts are incredibly conversational nobody's planned any of that out they're all talking off the top of their head they're just having a conversation mm-hmm. so you take a couple of minutes of of any of those and you transcribe them exactly the way that that people speak uh you will see 
how completely unintelligible actual speech is um, and then try to form what they're saying into uh, into dialogue that actually makes sense. Yeah. And if you don't have one of those podcasts um, just for fun, uh, it, whether you like Law and Order or not. Um, our friends, Rebecca and Kevin's podcast, uh, these are their stories. Lonnie and I have both guested. There is no script at all. You have to be on your toes when you guest with them. Um, but that would be a super fun conversational one to transcribe. Oh, yeah. No, that, but they're, they're actually incredibly well-spoken. They are. And, well, uh, and it will make you appreciate yeah. the fact that they have no script. Like they, that's how they exactly. talk. It's really that's great. That's how they talk. They're that's very how they good. Talk. They're very polished. They're very well-spoken. They're well -spoken. very funny. Yeah. I would I would listen to that just because it's a really good podcast. I don't know if it's a good example for this exercise because you really want people who are not speaking in polished. They oh, are well, so polished listen to in us. Their language. Then we're good. Just they can use us. us. Yeah, no, we're we're actually a pretty <laughs> good perfect. example of that. We're a pretty good <laughs> example of that. Um, so yeah, so I would definitely uh, you know pick a conversational one, but definitely listen to these or their stories. I don't like Law and Order. I've been on the show I don't more either. times than anybody else um, yep. so far. I think I've been on. I've been guested on it like four times. Um, yep. But I love. I love Kevin and Rebecca yep. so much. Yeah, I don't like Law and Order, time, and I've been on there twice. They're just so much fun to talk they to. They ask me, I'm like, "Are you kidding? Yes. Absolutely, right? Yep. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> All right, cool. That was fun. We learned it a was lot. Yeah. So we we like to wrap up talking about love. What you love? What story? What are you loving right now, honey? Uh, what I'm loving right now, actually, is uh, Some Good News with John Krasinski. John Krasinski is, of course, uh, Jim from The Office. I have loved mm -hmm. John Krasinski since he first showed up on The Office as a wee baby child, and I love him now. Um, I also have a cat here who is meow. I was about to say, I think I heard a meow. Mm -hmm. You did hear a meow, and I am sorry. That's Zoe. That's Zoe. Hi, Zoe. Zoe. The rogue squirrel hunter who keeps meowing because she wants up on my lap. Oh. Yeah, I'm not usually, editing that out. I'm leaving it in. Come on, I usually Zoe. try to keep her locked out during the podcasting, but I just didn't today because I've been in quarantine and I'm not thinking. Um, so anyway, yeah, <laughs> you're getting the real, the real experience. But anyway, mm -hmm. some good news with John Krasinski uh, on YouTube. He's um, trying to bring the the bright side, the good stories, you know, the positive things out to um, to everybody, and it's been a joy to watch. Uh, this week he had a uh, there was this girl, this nine-year-old kid who was supposed to go to Hamilton and see it and um, because the quarantine couldn't. Big Hamilton fan. And he got everybody from the cast of Hamilton in this <gasps> Zoom call to oh perform live a song for her. And it was <laughs> amazing. So, uh, yeah, right now I find a lot of times my ability to focus on anything is really, really limited. These are like 10 minute, you know, things that John Krasinski is doing. It is adorable. It is sweet. It is uh, goodness with a capital G and it should lift your spirits. So some good news with John Krasinski. That is fantastic. I will absolutely check that out. Yeah. So I had I ended up with a tie. Um, Yay. because when I, you know, first put script together, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I had fallen in love with, um, Abby Wambach's audiobook mm -hmm. for Wolfpack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is wife of Glennon Doyle, soccer champion, badass superstar, incredible woman. Um, and it, the book is based on her 2018 commencement speech to Barnard College. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, and I, in my work, I do a lot of leadership development. I lead, I read a lot of leadership books. Um, yeah, I, I I will admit my my expectations were a little low because it's mm-hmm. a genre that I yeah. have certain expectations for. Mm-hmm. Holy God, I have oh, no I words. Love it. Like I mm-hmm. I think it's an hour and twenty minutes, maybe. Mm-hmm. I I have now listened to it, it like I, three times. It will be a monthly thing mm-hmm. that I listen to until I have every oh. word memorized and all all i can tell you is she starts out and this is this is a um this is a power speech for women but i think is applicable Mm -hmm. to everyone um and to ever certainly everyone who leads and and we all lead in our own ways but she comes out right at the beginning she says we have never been little red white riding hood we are wolves and then she just proceeds to kick ass for an hour and 20 minutes it is a thing of glory it is incredible so I, I just, it. it's, it, it's amazing. Um, I love it. And so like, that was what I had for Love What You Love. And then mm-hmm. everyone, everyone, every, literally everyone has been telling me to watch The Good Place for like, oh, I don't know, yeah. mm-hmm. ever. And I've never, I've never watched it. Um, I just, mm-hmm. you know, mostly don't have time. Um, and yeah. I don't watch a lot of comedy. It's not my go-to yeah. genre, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but quarantine uh sure there's there's yeah. nowhere to go so i started i was like all right all right all right i'll watch an episode mm-hmm. and like five episodes later uh. <laughs> i was completely in love i've already finished season one like just in no time oh my god holy yeah. mother forking shirt balls that show yeah. is so good and i love it and i'm so glad you told me to watch it Ah, uh, yes. No, I love that show. It is so good. And I am so, so very glad that you're watching it because yeah. it's excellent. I love it. So that is it for us for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie and Lonnie Dianrich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. How Story Works and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to arc our characters properly. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our April producers. Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Alice, Erica, Abigail, and Jonathan. And this week's special message for our power producers, everything your character says has meaning, even if the meaning is subtext. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a How Story Works producer. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or spell all your dialogue phonetically because it's Lonnie's favorite thing. Oh my God, don't do that. We'll be back <laughs> next time with an interview with our special guest, Jocelyn Jackson. Woo-hoo! Until then, I know, right? We're so excited. She's so amazing. I love her. Until then, if your character says they love dogs but then kicks a puppy, we know exactly who that character is. <laughs>